0: A Japanese on you. An
1: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Dawood and I'm Matt Sanderson and this episode we're putting together the pieces of our discussions about The King in Yellow, the Carcosa Mythos and looking at possibilities for
0: gaming. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on?
1: In a few days after the release of this show, there is Games Expo taking place in Birmingham, England. And Matt and myself will be there. Matt, you're mm-hmm. running the game on the Friday as part of the Cthulhu Tournament? Yes, yes indeed. Yeah, the one of one of the
2: first roundtables.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to be running one in the evening. So we're running those for the Chaosium Tournament there. And on the Saturday around lunchtime, I'll be taking part in a seminar with Dirk Gedice from the Grognard Files and Gaz from What Would the Smart Party Do?
0: I did like the fact, by the way, you qualified Birmingham, England, because I'm, I'm just imagining all the disappointed people who've turned up in Birmingham, Alabama, looking for UK Games Expo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess the UK bit would have clarified that.
0: Yeah, just just perhaps.
1: Yeah, I didn't figure that, but I was, I was like, you know, I was thinking I was being clever there, but yeah, okay, that always goes badly for me.
0: And speaking of the Smart Party... Yeah, it's
1: not so long ago since I had the pleasure of being on their 100th show. Again, along with Dirk the Dice, the four of us, with Baz, of course, from uh, the Smart Party, took part in a State of the Nation discussion of gaming for their 100th show.
0: So, that sounds like a bunch of middle-aged men sitting around complaining about stuff. We didn't just complain. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That sounds like my kind of discussion.
1: (laughs) You're not middle-aged, Matt. Well are you? I don't know. I feel like it half the time. Mm. You're on the cusp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was on the cusp when I first met him at <laughs> age 21..
2: <laughs> now on to our main topic, the Carcosa Mythos in media and gaming.
0: Well, once again, we're going to stick to talking about the Carcosa mythos, as opposed to the Cthulhu mythos, Hasta mythos, whatever. So this is just all the stuff that's derived from the works of Robert W. Chambers, before we got any of that sort of Cthuloid stuff mixed in there, courtesy of August Derleth.
1: So there are literally hundreds of... well, actually, is it literally hundreds? There as are certainly yet.
0: Oh, yeah, I think it's literally hundreds. Because, I mean, there are a number of anthologies and collections and uncollected short stories out there. I'd say, yeah, certainly over a hundred, and probably hundreds.
1: Yeah, then there are various collections that. You know been published by some you know related to gaming some not Joe Pulver has been pretty instrumental in putting together and editing
0: at least two or three collections he's probably I'd say the most prolific modern author working in the Carcosa mythos I wonder whether it would be almost fair to compare him to August Derlith in his popularization of Chambers and the Carcosa mythos and the way that Derlith revived the, the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft mm. He's edited all these anthologies, he's written many stories himself, there is that collection that he's put out called The King in Yellow Tales, and he's edited Casilda's Song for Chaosium and A Season in Carcosa.
1: For uh, Misklank River Press. Right, song, yes. yeah. Other major anthologies include The Hastur Cycle, which goes back to 1993, published by Chaosium and edited by Robert Price, and Rehearsals for Oblivion. Act One, although I don't think it was ever an Act Two. No, there wasn't. From Elder Science Press in 2006, edited by Peter Worthy.
0: Rehearsals for Oblivion. Yeah, I mean, that was a fantastic anthology. As with all such anthologies, it's not consistent, but there is a lot of damn good stuff in there. Including
2: two of the very hard-to-find-these-days stories by John Tynes, Ambrose and Brawlerbin. But
0: sadly not the third one, so The Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that, that one still remains elusive for my collection. That's a hole. That one one day I will fill.
0: Ambrose is, I assume, from the name, that it's is riffing on Ambrose Bierce and his connection to the Carcosa mythos. I mean, the protagonist of it seems to be this version of Ambrose Bierce who's forgotten who he is, who's in Carcosa. This very strange, idiosyncratic, not entirely threatening version of Carcosa. No, it's a lovely story. I really it like is. it. And yeah, it plays upon the the whole conceit that Ambrose Bierce disappeared under mysterious circumstances, but yes, fell through the cracks and ended up in this very strange clockwork driven version of Carcosa. yeah, kind of clockwork deserted dreamlike city. Mm. And the other story in there of his broad album, which takes its name from the community in which Robert Chambers lived. It doesn't actually take place in the broad album of Chambers. It takes place in a hotel, this very strange hotel, and again has this wonderful dreamlike atmosphere to it.
2: You can see where Tyne's mind, um, his own story, or maybe it was the other way around, I don't know. I, I encountered it because I'd read Night Floors and the Hasta Mythos in Delta Green Countdown first. But there's imagery that pervades both those stories. Mm. Lots of puppets, lots of clockwork again. Yeah, you can definitely tell there's a a
0: very, very palpable link between the two. Yeah, Um, it's interesting because the short stories that he wrote that ended up becoming foundational for unknown armies use a lot of the same kind of imagery as well. mm -hmm. So these are obviously motifs he really likes. Mm -hmm.
1: And we said we've read a selection of these various short stories from various collections and so on. So what were some of our favourites? If I was to pick a favourite, we've actually already touched upon it, it would have been Brodelbin, because I think
2: that's probably the best King and Yellow short story I've read. But one that just because it just made me laugh so much with the opening line was uh, Movie Night at Phil's by Don Webb, which is included in A Seasoning Carcosa, one of the collections edited by Joseph Pulver. Just because the opening line, I say, was so amusing. About two years after, in fact, 23 months after the event, Philip Saxon realised that he owed what was left of his sanity to Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> Well, wow, that's a debt. Yeah. It revolves around the idea that what would happen if there was a film version of The King in Yellow.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And bending real world history quite significantly, really. Who would be the perfect director to put something from that kind of late Gothic period onto the screen? Oh,
0: is, is this the one? I haven't read it, but is this the one that I've heard about where it was directed by Fritz Lang?
2: No, Roger Corman. Oh, okay, (laughs) right. (laughs) We complete with Vincent Price in uh, rolling off his days of films of the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations.
0: Oh, oh, that's just perfect. Oh, yeah, it
2: is amazing. It comes up with this really tongue-in-cheek background of how it was made, the problems in production, what happened to some of the cast members afterwards, etc. And then, of course, one guy finds it on eBay being flogged in, in Betamax but then it's so, like oh crap I can't watch it because I haven't got a Betamax player but hang on a minute a guy from work I know has and it's all because he hasn't got the equipment to play it that he misses the showing because of some contrivance happens where he doesn't get back home in time but the rest of the family who sat watching it have either killed themselves, killed each other, or sat, <laughs> Luna, sat insane in a closet, mumbling. And yeah, he just catches the last few minutes of it, and that erases most of his sanity, and he's left in a sanatorium at the end of it, thinking, uh, Beta Max." Uh. Uh,
0: I would have thought if a, a Roger Coleman production would do that to anyone, it would have been humanised from the Deep*. But yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I've not seen that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not missing much. <laughs>
2: The close second behind that for me in that same collection was going to be Beyond the Banks of the River Seine by Simon Strans... Oh, I, can't, I can't pronounce the surname. Really. Strances. That's the one. It seemed to me a quite blatant take on what would you get if you mashed the music of Eric Zahn with The King in Yellow? Oh, right. It's very much a a piece that looks... A, well, it's a play. Some plays have musical accompaniments. What happens if the music drives you uh, shitbag insane as well? It has a really nice end, but I think the lead-up to it is just a bit laborious, which is why it fell into second place.
0: Right. uh, Charles Stross did something vaguely similar in one of the Laundry Files books, where The King in Yellow is reinvented as an opera or an operetta, I can't remember which, and The Annihilation Score is the book. It is about a performance or building up to a performance of the opera. Mm. If I had to pick a single favourite King in Yellow story, perhaps unsurprisingly, I would go for Carl Edward Wagner's River of Nights Dreaming. It's basically everything I love about the Carcosa mythos in that it's playing games with identity and perception and this sort of fugue of madness. It's a very impressionistic story, not quite surrealistic, but it's a befuddling thing to read. And more kink than you can shake a stick at. (laughs) Yes. The basic idea of it is that there is this prisoner from a woman's prison who is in a bus crash. Uh, The bus crashes into this river and she alone escapes and swims across the river and ends up in this strange house owned by Mrs Castain, appropriately enough, and her maid Camilla. She takes on the identity of Casilda. She you know, uses the pseudonym Casilda Archer and basically gives bedtime readings of the King in Yellow to Mrs Castain, and gets drawn more and more into the text and starts mixing up her own identity with that of Casilda from the play and just losing herself in it. And yeah, as you say, I mean, there's a lot of you know, sexually adventurous stuff going on there as well, which very much plays into the decadent aspects of the King in Yellow from the 1890s. But the whole thing is just beautifully written and it's not really creepy, it's not really horrific, but it's almost got that Philip K. Dick thing where it just undermines your sense of reality and there's revelations at the end about what might or might not have been going on. And it is a beautiful deconstruction of reality. And if I'd have to pick another story to recommend, I mean, it's one we've discussed already, is James Blish's More Light*? He does something very interesting with that, as we touched upon in a previous episode, which is he attempts to provide a reason for why the King Yellow drives people mad, and it's not the one that you'd expect. It's not any direct secrets or revelations in the text itself, but it's almost like this carrier signal that runs underneath it. It's like it primes you for a connection with something else. I think what's clever about that is that it works around that whole idea that any secrets, any ideas you could mention directly related to The King in Yellow will always fall short of what the play is actually supposed to do in the, the stories, I think Blish worked around that quite nicely, and, and the excerpts he writes from The King in Yellow and there are quite gripping, but also mundane in a way that lends credence to his main thesis. So, yeah, I think it's a very clever story and certainly one of the highlights of the, the sub-genre.
1: If I had to pick a favourite, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I find a lot of the King in Yellow-themed stories, they kind of reuse the same elements again and again, and it just jumps out at you and just... I found it a bit tiresome sometimes but the ones that I enjoyed most were you know like a breath of fresh air and one I just ended up reading yesterday from the collection A Season in Carcosa by Cody Goodfellow entitled Wishing Well it's a really different take on it it's by a guy in the modern day who is suffering quite severe mental illness and he's kind of tracing it back to the early 70s when he was a young child and he was taking part in a TV show which ran for maybe a hundred episodes called The Golden Class, I think it was, like a, a classroom of children. And he's very confused in his memory because he was very young at the time and the show got cancelled, but he still gets some royalties and strange things that happened then. And he talks about going to an island as a sort of refuge and he, he clearly takes off to this island occasionally. But it's like a traffic island. It's an island hmm. in between some motorways. And this is a place where his father took him when he was a young kid. And apparently there's this wishing well there. And it involves this cult from uh, TV and cinema. Yeah, it's a very interesting take and a really compelling read.
0: Yeah, I've read a few of, of Goodfellow's stories. And yeah, he is a fantastically gifted writer and has a, a weird fucking imagination.
1: <laughs> yeah. The other one that I would... Mention if I would have to put a second place, would be from a Delta Green collection, Dark Theatres, published in 2001. A story by a writer named Aaron Dembo entitled Suicide Watch. I've read it, and that's another one that does a little mash-up with Eric Zahn as well. Yes. It does, and it's um, another one that obviously plays upon music and brings in mentions of Eric Zahn. And it's very much an uh, analogue of the last days of Kurt Cobain. It uses different names, so clearly there's Kurt Cobain, clearly there's Courtney Love, clearly there's the other members of Nirvana and so on in, in the final days leading up to Kurt's suicide. And we have a Delta Green agent who is put in as a bodyguard for Kurt Cobain. And this is a—I'd have to say—a novella. It's over 100 pages long. Oh wow! Um, but it's, it's by far most of the book. It's a great story, particularly you know if you're a fan of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, it, it really draws upon that really, really heavily with flashbacks to Nam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To the Delta Greens agents' uh, time in. Actually, I think Laos hunting down the uh, the chocho and so on. That's it. I remember
2: those. There's just a great little moment in there that's always stuck in my mind for visualizing how Mythos spells are cast. As there's mm. the the dying chocho on the ground. He just gestures with his hand, and this whole village just bursts into flame. Yeah, that's yeah. a
1: fantastic scene. Yeah.
0: And now let's take a look at how the Carcosa Mythos has been used in other media.
2: While there have been a large number of works inspired by The King in Yellow, most of the games, especially, conflate it with the Cthulhu Mythos. For now, we'll focus on those that stick to the Carcosa Mythos.
0: So, building on what we did last episode, let's take a look initially at some of the ways the yellow sign has been used, because that's probably the most prevalent bit of iconography that's appeared in other places.
2: And yet doesn't have the same kind of whole star, tree, star,
1: tree debate around it.
0: No, despite the fact there are a lot of different versions of <laughs> Yeah, it.
1: Yeah, there's about three or four I can think of. With the star, tree, elder sign debate, it's two very clear, different things, whereas it's a ill-defined thing... And it's hard to describe the iterations of it that have been rendered by different people as clearly as just saying one star, one's a tree.
0: Yeah, it's but, a much more abstract thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, what is the yellow sign? in Let's just, for a moment, just pin down what the yellow sign is in the stories. It seems to be very much a harbinger of death. When the character in the story, the yellow sign, sees it, that's when his doom really is imminent. Mm-hmm. And in The Repair of Reputations, it seems like... It's something that is referred to as being sent out to people as a, mm. as a herald, as a sort of sign of authority, almost like the king's seal Yeah, being bestowed upon
0: them or a call. Even in chambers, it seems to be a number of different things. Again, as with a lot of stuff in Lovecraft, I think that means from a gaming point of view, we're not beholden to any one interpretation of it that we're free to use it in all sorts of different ways.
2: Probably the most recognisable or probably the most well-known version um, stems from Call of Cthulhu. It was designed originally by Kevin Ross, who created it for his scenario Tell Me, Have You Seen the Yellow Sign? Although he does state that the version that we know was somewhat changed by Chaosium. They reversed the symbol,
1: turned it upside down, originally had two tentacles reaching upwards. So it's a little different. So it's backwards and upside down. If I just go yeah. to the computer, I can I can reverse it and put it back how it originally What? <laughs>
0: my <laughs> eyes!
1: And this is why
2: I'm glad I have my back to your screen most of the time. <laughs> well, I quite like it how it stands out now, because the way I almost describe it in when I have it feature in a game I run is that it's three question marks surrounding a central point.
0: Well, except they don't all have the same orientation, do they?
2: No, but then again, it's all vague and abstract and not hmm. trying to give away exactly what it is. Yeah. We're just saying, this this weird thing that looks like question marks.
0: Yeah, I think question marks work much better as a bit of imagery there than tentacles. mm mm-hmm. And more recently, there's been a version that has been done for the Yellow King RPG, which looks like an astrological symbol to me. I mean, it looks like a a sort of a mashup almost of the symbols for Jupiter and Ceres. It's the kind of thing that would look very at home, I think, in Elizabethan magic. It doesn't kind of mesh for me with that whole idea of it looking partly Chinese and partly Arabic and utterly inhuman. It looks much more rooted in, in traditional magical iconography. But at the same time, it's very striking.
2: It's also got use in Fall of Delta Green as well. Pelgrim managed to sneak it into a couple of other Cthulhu related RPGs. There.
0: Ah. <laughs> And the other different one that's out there is one that was designed as a badge that's sold by Psychographics, and that's S-I-G-H space C-O. They do this yellow sign badge that has got a glyph on it that I think, out of all the versions that I've seen, probably most resembles what Chambers hinted at, in that it does look like a character with hints of Chinese pictogram, perhaps hints of Arabic script, but at the same time, not either of them. We'll put links to all of these in the show notes.
1: And we see a different version of it used in True Detective in series one. A spiral. We see that a few times in the show, I think. And they make reference to uh, the King in Yellow and Black Stars throughout this series. I think a lot of people got very excited initially when that show came out and there was a reference to the Yellow King and Carcosa and so on. They explored that to some degree, but they never really went like deep into it.
0: Yeah, that was one of the big selling points for me. That's one of the things I loved about True Detective, which is it gave a, a novel interpretation of all of this. They you know used the iconography and did something with it that I hadn't seen before. Because I mean, anyone can just use the same elements over and over again in the same way, but they used this in a different genre, used it to tell a different kind of story, and as a result, it felt much fresher to me than most of the Carcos and mythos fiction I've read.
2: Whereas I thought it was a massive fucking cock tease, and I was really annoyed with that show.
0: I was yeah. expecting cosmic horror. I was expecting finally someone to put
1: The King in Yellow on the TV.
2: And no, it was a fucking cock drama.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you will to wait for that somebody to do more with The King in Yellow on TV. I mean, it might come, but... Yeah.
0: But I never think that that's a fair criticism of a piece of work, that if it's not what you expect... If you know someone ends up criticising one of your scenarios and says, "Well, there weren't enough dragons in it, Matt. I mean, this is a role playing scenario. Why aren't there dragon seats? You, you know, can It's put called dragons Dungeons and, in it. It's called Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there should be dragons.
2: If someone has found a scenario I've written for D and D, I want to know what they've <laughs> been using my but, name. But
0: but all, all role playing is Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it, Matt? <laughs>
2: Add, you can add as many dragons as you like. I can't do that with a TV show.
0: No, no, but the point is that if someone goes into it with a certain set of expectations and you, because of what you're trying to create or want to create, don't adhere to those expectations, that's not a problem with the creation or the person who made it. No,
2: no, it's not probably not so much my expectation with it, but I'd, I'd been sold on the fact it was one thing. It turned out to be something else, oh, and well, it's ex- not that that something else was not something that I wanted to see. No, but, if, but,
1: but that, I think a parallel would be if Matt wrote a scenario and there were loads of clues about dragons and then there is no dragon, then that would be a criticism, but he's not doing that. I mean, I I love the, The True Detective season one and I thought it did a fine job of it, but it does call upon some of those things without necessarily exploring them in
0: much depth. I was okay with that. I did think perhaps they were going to do more with it, though. Well, I like the fact that they kept it nicely ambiguous because you had one of the two protagonists, Rustin Cole, who had some kind of drug-induced psychosis and trauma and so on, and as a result, you know, saw things that perhaps no one else saw. And we were never quite sure whether this was because his brain chemistry was fried or whether he was seeing some of these cosmic elements that you were after, he does get a glimpse towards the end into something within Carcosa mm. that may be transcendent. He, at some point, sees the yellow sign manifest in this flock of birds up ahead. That is one of my favourite moments out of the entire that series. That is really cool, yeah. Yeah. I think if you want to, you can read the whole thing as cosmic horror. But, but, it's it. a, but it's ambiguous. And I
1: think as attack at the end, doesn't uh, the killer bid him to take off his mask? Yes.
0: I think, yeah. There's a lot of other weird fiction influence in True Detective as well. There's a lot of stuff that seems to be lifted out of Carl Edward Wagner's sticks, which anyone who's listened to our earlier episode or read Carl Edward Wagner's sticks will recognise as being pretty much lifted directly from that. And also, Rustin Cole as a character is pretty much the embodiment of a lot of Thomas Ligotti's writings. In fact, so much so that people have accused Nick Pizzolatto, who wrote True Detective, of plagiarism for lifting whole bits of dialogue almost entirely from Ligotti's conspiracy against the human race, which is his book of antinatalist philosophy. But just sticking to the yellow sign for a moment, the other connection there with True Detective is that that spiral symbol gets revisited in Series 3 of True Detective. Oh, right. I've and yet to see that. It's a sort of passing reference, uh, but you know, it's a different connection between the two series. It's referred to there, and apparently, I think from my cursory research, this isn't something Pizzolatto invented, that it is actually used as a sort of recognition symbol by some paedophile groups. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he sort of took that real-world thing and said, right, this is what I'm going to use as the yellow sign. Not something I want to start researching. No, I stuck to Wikipedia for that one.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Some people, and by that, I mean me included when I first saw it, (laughs) um, have mistaken a symbol on the cover of the first edition of the collection for the yellow sign. This was, in fact, the logo of the publisher, F. Tennyson Neely, based on his initials. It appears on all their books. And there was me thinking, hey, this looks something weird that they've put on the back of the book. Hey, this, this could be good. No. no
1: <laughs> well, you know, who's to say? It could be.
0: <laughs> it's as much the yellow sign as anything else is, Matt. <laughs> Earlier in this episode, I mentioned Carl Edward Wagner's River of Night's Dreaming. That was actually adapted for television as part of the Hunger TV series by Showtime back in 1997. I got really excited when that came on TV because, you know, as I mentioned, it's one of my favourite stories. And I still don't know why they did this. I mean, The Hunger was a really frustrating series in a lot of respects. It had some great episodes, but they adapted a lot of classic weird fiction short stories and then changed them in bizarre ways. So the way they changed The River of Nights Dreaming was to take out every reference to The King in Yellow and the Carcosa Mythos. So the percentage Which... of kink just went up even further. That, that's right. I mean, it did become basically a uh, almost a softcore BDSM piece, but it's not terrible, but it's frustrating if you're expecting it to bear much relationship to the story. Aaron Vanek made a short film in 2001 based on The Yellow Sign
1: uh, with a script by John Tynes. And we three watched this when we were in Stockholm in 2005, I think, at Miskatonicon, yes. Yeah. As I recall, it's fairly recognisable to the story, or not, there's, Matt?
2: you it. There's elements of it, mm. um, i.e. there's a painter, there's a model. Yeah. Um, but it's more a modern-day setting. The location is different. It's in a house which is effectively haunted, and the spirits can't leave because of X, Y, and Z. That's all tied with Carcosa being part of the invisible world, and that the watchman is stopping the people leaving the house. There's some cursory elements which are similar, but it does deviate wildly. Right. But the nice little Easter egg for me in there... Mm -hmm. Chibi Cthulhu mouse mat in one of the opening scenes on the the (laughs) computer And Scott just suddenly looks like he's been punched in the gut Uh,
0: My mind had had sealed over that memory Had expunged it like a bit of rancid meat
2: (laughs) Although one that is a bit closer to the original story But again does a few tweaks here and there Updating it to a modern setting using a photographer rather than a painter it's a short film on YouTube being divided into three parts that's just called The Yellow Sign. It retells a story in around
0: 10 minutes, so it is a pretty
2: whistle-stop tour all the way through.
0: I really liked this. The, the acting in it, I thought, was better than most amateur films I've seen. Production qualities, while low-budget, made really good use of simple sets and the limitations that they were working with. And I thought, yeah, very effective. I will, we'll post a link from the show notes. Yeah.
1: Insylum is a short, free RPG by Dennis Detwiller, published in 2005. The player characters are all patients in a strange asylum. They were guests at a party. There was a mask, then nothing. The patients are now working to recover their memories, learning more about their connection to the horrors of the king in yellow.
0: Yeah, I think this ties in a bit more with the Tyne's interpretation of Carcosa and perhaps sort of blends in a bit more some of the Call of Cthulhu stuff. But at the same time, it does seem to tie in very much with the Carcosa mythos.
1: And I listened to the interview on the Smart Party podcast with Dennis Stetwiller recently, Mm -hmm. and I seem to recall he said they're working on a King in Yellow campaign, or they're doing a lot of work on King in Yellow-related material right now. Yes, okay.
2: uh, that's for Delta Green. I think it's called Impossible Landscapes. But yeah, that was one of the books funded by the original Delta Green Kickstarter before they did the second one for the Labyrinth. That was the one done a couple of years ago that it's on their list of stuff to eventually do. Mm. So that's something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Jumping forward a few years, back in 2011, Robin Laws adapted The Repair of Reputations into a scenario for Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, the scenario builds upon the settings and events of the story, creating a parallel and possibly delusional narrative as they help poor little Hildred Castain become the Emperor of America. Um, it's since been collected as part of the 2013 collection, Out of
1: Space. When you say poor little Hildred, you mean <laughs> murderous madman?
0: He's just misunderstood. Yeah, okay. I think it's perfectly justifiable that he's committing murder because he has been frustrated out of his rightful place as the emperor of America, as the head of the dynasty of Carcosa. All these people keep getting in his way and hitting him with all these trivialities. Like, Well, yeah.
1: okay, well, I'll vote if I was American, which sadly I'm not. Otherwise, I could vote for Hildred Castain 2020. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: not well, the worst possible choice. Which, which would you prefer, the
2: king in yellow or the king in orange? <laughs> There is a great little mechanic in the Repair of Reputations, which I remember from having read it a few years back, is that the moment any player, emphasis player, not Uh even necessarily character, references, this sounds a little bit like the King in Yellow, that immediately activates a set of mechanics where effectively reality is just destroyed around all the PCs (laughs) for uh, for even just mentioning the name. Oh, right.
0: Yeah, cool. (laughs) And following on from that, Robin Laws has written the Yellow King RPG, which was funded by Kickstarter back in 2017. It uses a customised version of Gumshoe, and it's a self-contained campaign, from what I understand. I've not actually read it or played it. It's actually four campaigns, really. From what I read about it, it's creating alternate histories, much the same way as the Repair of Reputations does, starting from the 1890s Paris and building up to... What, two different versions in the modern day? Well, one's kind of modern, one's postmodern.
2: All right. You've got the origin of when the play came out in Paris, you've then got the war that's referenced, kind of the Eurasian War in the alternate nineteen twenties, one that I remember's called something like, Is this the new normal? The one that interests me more is the first one. So with the with the play coming out.
0: But you, you've actually backed the campaign, haven't you?
2: I, I backed it at the highest level you could. So of course I got, you <laughs>
1: can
2: that. I, I got What else one, would we expect? I got one of the ultra deluxe copies when they finally turn up because they still haven't shipped the physical rewards yet. But yeah, that will be a deluxe copy with extra annotations and, and added bits.
1: Now let's move on to look at how we might use the Carcosa Mythos in our gaming.
0: We've talked a lot over the last few episodes about the Carcosa mythos and the stories that built it up and the stories that extended it and how other people have used it, but we're a gaming podcast, aren't we? So how would we actually use this stuff in our games? And again, we're going to stick entirely to the Carcosa mythos and, you know, keep all that tentacle stuff out for the time being. We'll get to that next episode. So there's a variety of elements in this that you can pull
1: out at your discretion, the ones that appeal to me more, I think, are the the strange city of Calcosa, the, the Lake of Harley, perhaps the uh, the Phantom of Truth, whatever you know those things are. I'm not so keen on the contents of the play, like Casilda hmm. and things like that, because when I come across those in stories, they just kind of don't really resonate with me. That seems like something that is specific. I don't necessarily want to pull into a game. I have already done a, a King in Yellow-themed scenario. I don't know if I should say which one, but
0: that would no, be, yeah. be a pretty big it's, spoiler. It's a huge spoiler. Yeah, a yeah. spoiler.
1: Yeah. Well, if you want to know, then just message me.
0: <laughs> but then thinking about some of these specific elements, we talked about the yellow sign. How might we use the yellow sign in our games?
2: Well, I've, I've definitely used it in one scenario as being almost like a beacon, that it's a particular motif that would attract the attention of Haster. So it could almost create a bridge between our world or wherever it's formed and Carcosa itself, allowing potentially for travel between the two, kind of barriers between the worlds dropping between those places. Um, and then when that symbol is broken, then that connection is lost.
1: And did you have it causing like sanity loss for seeing it? Because that's something I always struggle with mm. a bit. The way I'd played around with it was that it wasn't necessarily
2: something you could inherently see unless you put dots together. The idea was the scenario was set in a library, and it's all the books that um, had been supposedly be going missing. It was actually inspired by an article in The Guardian that was saying that there were so many thousand copies of books in the British Library that had been misplaced or gone missing, but were actually still somewhere in the library just put in the wrong section. But well, what happens if someone's been moving around those books with a specific intent and they're moving them to specific places? And if you plotted on the layout of the map of the stacks and the rest of the library where these books were moving to and from, then you got a dot-to-dot version of the other
1: sign. <laughs> Join the dots version. Join the dots. Ah! <laughs> yeah, actually, I played that one with you. You ran it for me some years ago at the club, I think. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, that was fun. So, yeah, sorry. That does make me think, though, that a scenario hook you could use that's related to that is just putting out dot the dot puzzles that have got things like the yellow sign there. Like, can you imagine a puzzle book going out on the shelves of W. Smiths or something like that? Yeah, <laughs> that, that, yeah. Have, <laughs> have you traced the yellow sign? <laughs>
1: I guess I kind of like the idea that if we looked at the yellow sign without having been already primed in some way. So I think it's like maybe if you've read the play and then you see the sign, it resonates. Or if you've already been into Carcosa, perhaps in your dreams, or you've already met the Phantom of Truth or something like that, that when you see the yellow sign now, it has an effect on you, whereas before, perhaps when you saw it, it was just a meaningless picture.
0: Yeah, I get the impression from the Chamber stories particularly that the yellow sign seems to interact in some way with people's traumas or psychological state or, you know, the weird shit they've encountered. And it does strike me that a potential use for it in games is as a a way of not necessarily manifesting but uh, amplifying or drawing out some of the negative backstory elements that characters may have built up over play if you've got a, a long-term investigator and they've you know, started filling in all that the nasty connections on the back of their sheet that the yellow sign is yeah just a way of plugging into those
1: well, i ran Tatters of the king at the, the club and i think mm-hmm. i tried to kind of play on that the fact that some of you already lost sanity related to the king in yellow mythos so that the yellow sign meant something to you when you saw it and it would be a bad
0: thing to to, to view it the other aspect of the yellow sign that intrigues me is one that you touched on earlier, Paul, which is this idea of it being a sort of harbinger of death or of doom. In its most reductive form, you could almost use it as a way uh, in a Call of Cthulhu game to do something along the lines of it follows or, or even final destination, where you know, you've got death that has been invited upon the investigators, and that the scenarios just, not even can they escape their doom, but it's, you know, how long can they hold it off? How can they prepare for the end? How mm. can they perhaps mitigate the circumstances a bit? It always strikes me as interesting how far you can go with scenarios like that. You know, scenarios where you, you perhaps start off from the point of view, right, your character is going to die at the end of this. You know, there is no escape. But, you know, what can you do during the course of that scenario to actually make it fun to play or interesting to play? Uh, yeah, I think it's a fine balance. It's something I have tried to do a few times, particularly in convention games, with mixed success. Some players really latch onto it and you know enjoy that sort of playing around with imminent doom, and some people just will not buy into that.
1: In that case, I recommend the game Ten Candles, because that's all about ultimate, definite demise of your character.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, and That might be a very good one for doing a, a yellow sign type game.
1: Yeah, I think it could be. In Ten Candles, you've got the candles and the world is dark. You don't know why. I mean, maybe because you've been transported to Carcosa. I don't mm. know. And there are black stars.
0: Yeah.
2: It's weird. I think I'd probably fall into that latter camp where I maybe wouldn't buy into it because I do like a degree of, not sorry hope, but a degree that I can potentially shape the end of the scenario. And if I know what that end is, then I'm thinking, well, there's no real point in going ahead. But on the mm. other hand... I like films like DOA, where we know the character from the outset is going to die.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think if it's definite that everybody is going to die at the end, it's probably preferable that you're told that at the start. Otherwise, it does feel like you're a bit railroaded towards
0: death. Mm. Okay. well, how about uh, The Phantom of Truth? You picked that up as an an element that that you particularly liked, Paul. What does that evoke to you as a gaming concept?
1: It just seems like a really enigmatic figure in Mm. the story, this strange person who's puffy flesh very pale very cold to the touch like a corpse perhaps they are already dead and the characters see them in a dream so i kind of like the idea in gaming that perhaps you're working on a new housing estate or something like that and you're part of the planning committee some of the characters have had a dream about this figure that perhaps turns up at the planning meeting and this planning could be for a new housing estate or something like that, which is perhaps almost like a gateway to Carcosa, this, this housing estate. You're talking
0: about the Lakes estate, aren't you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> you could play it obvious and call it Carcosa Fields or something like that. <laughs> but no, I just kind of think this Phantom of Truth is somebody who can manifest and perhaps disappear again. And maybe after the meeting, as we see in, in a number of films, where there's a character that we see, but then later... It's apparent that only some of the protagonists yeah. saw that character. It's like, well, what about that guy? What guy? He's a. Oh, well, I guess that's the, the word phantom is bringing that to mind.
0: Mm. But it's interesting that you've sort of seized upon the imagery of the watchman from the Yellow Sign mm. as being the Phantom of Truth. Yeah. Because there's no necessarily, not necessarily any connection between them in the Chamber stories. I think you know, it's, it's easy to see him as being a manifestation of the Phantom of Truth. But in Chambers, I mean, we hear that reference to the discussion between you know, Mr. Scott and Tessie uh, of what they've read in The King in Yellow and how the Phantom of Truth was laid.
1: Yeah, there's reference to the Phantom of Truth at the end of the story and that watchman does turn up at the end of the story So there's sort of to me there's a strong link and indication there that it's not explicitly said But it seems Mm. a strong indication that that is that character
0: Whereas for me it perhaps evokes different things that whole idea of the Phantom of Truth was laid, you know laid to rest It makes me think of the ambiguity for a start of the name the Phantom of Truth Because is it the ghost of the concept of truth or the idea of truth? So is it the fact that, you know, some form of reality has died? Or is it some kind of manifestation or embodiment of truth? I mean, it can mean two polar opposite things there. I like the idea that his manifestation could perhaps be a way of unveiling truths. I find myself thinking of, you know, for example, Angel Heart, uh, mm-hmm. the character of Louis Cipher in that, could very much be a manifestation of the Phantom of Truth in that he is bringing out these unwanted buried truths and bringing them to the surface. Or alternatively, um, Inspector Gould from uh, Inspector Coles. Yeah. I've taken more of a different
2: approach to it, maybe riffing off that it's ultimately an intermediary between, in-games, the investigators and the King in Yellow as a godlike figure. The godlike figure should be something, at least when I've run it, something that's maybe seen from afar or you meet at the climax of a scenario. Mm -hmm. It's not really something, well, maybe unless you go down the Lumley route of being able to go up against a god and win, that it's not really something that you should have much direct interaction with in a scenario, maybe that culminating scene where you're either trying to run away from it or be ending up kneeling in front of him so I I view him almost like a Nyarlathotep figure that's in the way Nyarlathotep is maybe an intermediary between yourself and Hazathoth that he is a manifestation of certain aspects of the King in Yellow. When I've come to description, I've always run off that, we should all unmask, I wear no mask. So represent him as having this porcelain face, maybe when he smiles the porcelain cracks and you can see the hints of clockwork underneath, again drawing in some of the Tyne's imagery. Hmm. But really presenting him as this really unnatural, very inhuman figure. Maybe if you want to go down the route that might make Paul cringe, go a little bit marble and have him more like a silver surfer. Time figure, the, the, the Herald of Galactus arriving on a planet saying, Yep, you're all under the rule of the king now. <laughs>
1: it's okay, the sel- Silver is referenced in Reservoir Dogs, so I'm good with that. Oh, okay. I missed that one. But you say about not you know, looking in yellow and you know just reserving him for certain things in games. You two have told me multiple times about the time that Matt, as a player, you were trying to push a door open and the king in yellow was on the other side. <laughs> that was
2: not a Call of Cthulhu game. That was very different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was how we got to using the mythos gods as demons in The Sorcerer. And it couldn't knock down a fucking door!
1: <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> You were really true to the chamber. Right <laughs>
0: well, I guess you were trying to get into a chamber, but that was about it. Uh, so you mentioned masks a moment ago. So how about the pallid mask? What the hell do we think that is? And again, how might we use that in a game?
2: It's a great sort of device.
0: <laughs> oh, right, okay, well, uh, t- t- tell us about that because that's not an idea that occurred to me.
2: No, I mainly remember from this was a weird mashup that was uh, run by our friend Shauna uh, years ago that combined certain elements from Unknown Armies alongside the Hastamythos Mythos from Delta Green Countdown. And it came up in the course of that that wearing the pallid mask was protection from the king. So, of course, I put the bloody thing on and walked around everywhere with it, thinking, yeah, I'm protected, this is all good. And I was the one that was then stolen as part of the Hasta Mythos section that the other characters then had to go to Carcosa and get me back. I love having Matt in a game, because give
0: him a book, He'll read
1: it. it yes. Give him a mask. He'll put it on.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, this is uh, this is what you want from your Call of Cthulhu It games. is. I mean, all these people who talk about how to win Call of Cthulhu and, you know, you should never read books, you should just burn them on site and so on. Play a different fucking game, folks. <laughs>
2: well, I think Knights of the Dinner Table did a great parody of that with Scream of Cthulhu. Now, the first thing you know is burn the books. <laughs> or standing at the back of the party with your eyes closed does work. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, the mask thing puts me in mind a little bit of of a couple of things. One is the scene in the new season of Twin Peaks where Laura Palmer's mother takes off her mask. Shit, that is scary. Also, I just kind of think that the mask thing, I don't really, in my head, I'm not really seeing it as a physical mask you put on, but rather a bit like an actor on stage. When you have a, a small production and the same actors play different characters... Uh, it's almost as if they're putting a mask on. They totally change into a different person. And that is kind of what the mask seems like to me. If you take off the mask, you show your maybe your true self or some other self. But you're not literally taking a physical mask off. You're just revealing yourself, if you
0: like. Hmm. Yeah, I, I had an idea not a million miles away from what you were talking about with Shauna's game. The idea of the the pallid mask being a form of protection. I kept going back to those legends about how witches would protect themselves from death and destruction by removing their hearts and placing them in vessels and hiding those so that you know they couldn't be killed unless their hearts were destroyed wherever they're hidden i keep thinking a serpent is from vampire that does exactly that so but i was thinking of the pallid mask as being a way of doing that that you, you could protect yourself from the horrors of carcosa and the the way it sort of strips away identity and changes identity by imbuing the essence of, of your personality of yourself into the mask mm. the mask almost becomes yourself and it is like a backup or a reservoir that you can use to preserve your identity in the face of all this attrition. But yeah, you know, then that means that, yeah, you know, much like the witch's heart in a jar, then you could sort of steal someone's identity by stealing the mask that they've made or the you know, the mask that they've imbued all this into. To me, it brings
1: to mind more what you're talking about there is a picture of Dorian Grey. Yeah, a little bit. That's almost the mask that's been created and, you know, keeps him young.
0: Yeah, but I, I guess the difference is that if you stole that picture and ended up using it, you wouldn't suddenly have access to all of Dorian Gray's personality and memories and stuff like that. Whereas the palette mask could contain the very essence of someone and, and you mm. could learn all about them and perhaps risk even becoming them by wearing it.
1: But I mean, just extrapolating oh, from yeah. that idea, you could have a painter that can you oh, know, yeah. paint your true likeness on canvas. That would be pretty cool. I mean, mm. there's that idea, you know, of taking a photograph of somebody capturing a part of their soul. Mm. I mean, it almost sort of plays upon that as well to me. Yeah. Maybe we're getting away from masks there. but
2: Going the other end of the scale then, instead of maybe having it as a torture device, because that was, wasn't my own scenario, that was, say, was from the Hasta mythos, One particular bit of symbology and mythology and folklore I've always been interested in is the likes of the Hopi down in the southwest of the USA. The kachina dancers and kachina dolls, those symbologies I think are fascinating, particularly when their dancers would wear the masks of the different kachina, they would become, for all intents and purposes, that particular god or that particular spirit. Using that as a template, what if the pallid mask itself is a character or some kind of, again, channel to either one of the characters or even several characters in the play um, i think it's actually a star trek next generation episode that does that where data ends up taking on various different personifications of different characters from a religion that they meet from a probe in space that by putting on that particular mask you become that character Mm -hmm. so you actually you become the mask and it's someone's then got to get it off for you to get your own identity back
0: Yes, I, I have actually used a bit of that in William Shakespeare's The King in the Yellow.
2: Oh, there you go. Hey. Well,
0: do you want to just take a
1: moment and say what well, that is, Scott? You're working on a a scenario or a campaign? Yeah,
0: OK. So this is, what, three years overdue at this stage, and it's still only half written. But, yeah, William Shakespeare's The King in the Yellow is this thing I've been working on for for fucking ever for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. And as the name implies, it, it mixes up the theatrical world of Jacobean London just in the aftermath or, you know, a few years after the death of William Shakespeare and plays around with the idea that, you know, he built upon earlier sources, as he often did, and wrote his own version of The King in Yellow, which now it's getting spread around the theatrical world of, of London. is beginning to open gateways to Carcosa. And it's just basically a sort of sandbox campaign that mixes up theatrical underworld of Jacobean London, the worlds of Shakespeare's plays, and a fairly idiosyncratic version of, of Carcosa. So the version of Carcosa I've gone for is one where I've used the, the names from from Chambers and used basically nothing else from anything that I've read, or at least not consciously and just try to come up with a a reason as to why it's the way it is, the way it interacts with the rest of the world, and the way it sort of embodies a lot of the pathology and foibles of creation.
1: Another massive element in the whole scheme of things is Carcosa, this strange location, this city. And I was reading My Voice is Dead by Joel Lane. It's it's set in a modern-day city. The protagonist is somewhat jaded. Put it mildly, and he just goes to meet some people that he doesn't know that he's he's had contact with over the internet, and I'll just read this sentence: A man was waiting in a rusty blue metro. Casilda opened the back doors and got in beside Stephen. Welcome to Carcosa. He's met these people, got into a car. And then they say, welcome to Carcosa. It's like nothing's really changed, but everything's changed. I'm mm. that I thought that was really effective. It isn't that he's you know, entered some misty, different world. Ostensibly, it's the same world. But now, is he in Carcosa? It's like, oh,
0: what's happened? Yeah. I found that really intriguing. And they yeah. still
2: have power drills, if I remember the end of that story correctly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, but it's the idea that Carcosa is subjective rather than objective. That mm. is a lens through which you see the world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also like the idea of an objective Carcosa as well, of Carcosa as being a place. I, I did have an idea for a, perhaps a hook relating to that, that you know perhaps you know, some psychologist who's become obsessed with the idea of Carcosa, maybe after having read The King in Yellow or at least being exposed to people who have, who is then deliberately exposing test subjects to the text of The King in Yellow as a way of of almost acting as a cartographer of Carcosa, of uh, trying to find out, you know, what elements are subjective, what elements are objective, you know, whether everyone has their own Carcosa, and using these very disposable people as a way of sort of mapping it all out.
2: My particular take on it is a blend somewhere between the city of Amber and the uh, metropolis from Cults, in that similar to Tynes's version of it being in the Invisible World, that all cities are a reflection, or at least an inspiration, drawn from Carcosa, the original city and that wherever the light of Aldebaran shines throughout the universe, there is a connection to it, that sometimes you can just see out of the corner of your eye the real city and maybe fall through the cracks into this strange place, and got to substitute the Palace of the King for the Citadel of the Demiurge, Then you've pretty much got a similar template there.
0: Hmm. And of course within Carcosa you've got the Lake of Harley, which I find is a very evocative thing, although like everything else in Chambers, it's described in the vaguest possible terms. We know it's a lake, we know it's you know in Carcosa, and we know that there are clouds that that billow across it or maybe fill it it's a bit ambiguous yeah. isn't it
1: or does the water sometimes turn to mist i will point out we've the room recording room not only do we have the new mm. yellow wallpaper but above what,
0: what color is that um sort of cloudy white almost go on put us out of our misery rolling fog <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically You have turned the recording studio Into Carcosa
1: Yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh god we'll have, we'll, liked have, it. <laughs> we'll have to take some pictures and put it on the, uh, the Website <laughs> oh God, Yeah that, that does explain Everything Paul yeah. Going back to the Lake of Harley I mean, It did occur to me that if you had people who were able to Physically visit Carcosa And find some way of returning back that waters taken from the Lake of Harley would potentially be something that, in certain occult or weird circles, would be highly valued. I was trying to think what kinds of things people would want them for, and you know I, I mean the first thing obviously is some kind of elixir or even psychedelic drug that either opens gateways to carcosa, gives you visions of carcosa, or maybe just acts as a way of you know opening up new vistas and and enhancing creativity, but perhaps at some terrible cost over time. I'm pretty sure you could make some money on the
1: side selling bottles of that on eBay, Scott. (laughs) Or Etsy at the very least. Yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. just make some dry ice in there so there's a little bit of fog at the top. Yeah, Yeah. sorted. And it also kind of made me think, you know, what would happen if you got some of this stuff and started watering your garden with it? (laughs) Whether you could end up growing your own bonsai carcose.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd use it just as a way to enhance the weirdness of the area if you did go to Carcosa in a scenario just to have this huge rolling mass of fog that you're to then having to punt across it almost makes me think of the uh, the cover to the the last Pink Floyd album The Endless River because that has mm. a similar kind of feel to it Oh yeah, yeah. again just rowing across or punting across this seemingly unnatural lake and there are things shapes moving in the dark beneath you I think it addresses this in the Hasta mythos again, that there are whales down there or things that resemble whales that you can hear them calling every so often.
1: And it's in that story by John Tyne's Ambrose, where, you know, when he creates mm. his really strange flying machine, he dips down into the Lake of Mist. Mm-hmm. That's... Oh, yeah, it's kind of the revolving merry-go-round type mm. thing, Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, then just to wrap up this little segment of what we'd steal for gaming, are there any plot hooks that we thought up related to all this that didn't quite fit into the the discussion we've had so far?
2: Yeah, there's the text of The King in Yellow in particular. Um, I come back to that image of Tessie that she's just curled up in a corner, open the book, and then all of a sudden she's gibbering that even just reading small parts of Act Two have an effect. Hmm. What happens if you've got a bunch of literary terrorists? Not literal terrorists, but literary terrorists. They're the worst kind, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're like Illinois Nazis. They're, I hate those guys. But if they were taking passages of that text and dropping them into even things like self-help books, motivational posters, you know, all that shit that gets put around on the internet or you find in offices all over the world... What kind of truth would that expose them to and what would impact would that have upon the world?
0: Motivational posters from Carcosa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, I like that. And I think taking that one stage further, I mean, what if you could sort of render it partly safe or at least you know, lessen the effect? I mean, almost like adjusting the dosage of a drug by using the cut-up technique. That you know, you, you cut up uh, passages from The King in Yellow with other texts and mixed it in. And, and it almost acts as a barrier so you can get some of the effect without being completely destroyed by it. It becomes Ulysses. More like Finnegan's Wake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, appropriately enough, as you mentioned Ulysses, the one idea that had kind of occurred to me with all this was in 1921... There was a famous obscenity trial about Ulysses in that it was being published in Paris, I believe, and that uh, there were extracts of it that were being published in French magazines and sent over to the US that then became the focus of an obscenity trial under the the Comstock Act, I believe, which enforced uh, suppression of trade in or circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. The magazine ended up being seized and they ended up having to go to trial in the US to try to argue whether or not it was obscene. I just wondered what it would be like if that had happened with reprints of the King in yellow instead. A big part of the trial was proving that the contents were obscene. So we see in James's stories that there is nothing explicitly obscene, nothing explicitly against conventional morality in the stories. So what happens if you are part of the legal team that is either trying to prove that it's obscene or at least ar- or, or argue against it on either side, having to go over these texts, having to analyse them for immorality, for obscenity, and make your case in court? What would that courtroom end up being like? And I think that would make a fantastic scenario. I, I really want to write that someday.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, well, it does even state in the original stories that the book was banned by church and state mm-hmm. alike. There had yeah. to have been a legal process to have got the state, at least, to enact that ruling.
0: Thank you. Well, once again, we would like to say thank you to people, to a lot of people. We would like to say thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast and and shares word of it. We would like to thank everyone who backs us via Patreon. And we have new people to thank.
1: And starting off at the $1 level, we have a thanks going
0: out to Delmar Watkins. Well, thank you very much, Delmar. Indeed. Thank you, Delmar. And now we move on to the $3 level, where we not only say thank you, but we we give a hearty cheers and a toast to each backer. And so we would like to start out by thanking and saying cheers to Tom Lawson.
2: Indeed. Thank you very much and cheers, Tom. Cheers, Tom. And next at the $3 level, we say our cheers to Michael Drewine. So thank you very much, Michael. And cheers. Cheers, Michael. Thank
0: you and cheers, Michael.
1: And now... We move up to the five dollar level, hurrah! Well, actually, before we move on to the five dollar level, I've received a strange parcel. Was it delivered to you by some puffy guy wearing some
2: strange symbol and missing a finger? Well, it was that <laughs>
1: Amazon delivery driver? So yes. so yes, they don't hang around. <laughs> It got like this black book they opened up for me to sign. Just lists of names in red. My wife opened it to check that it was actually Cthulhu-related things and not just something I'd ordered and forgotten about. So I'm pretty sure it is. Although if it was something I'd ordered and forgotten about, it could still be something (laughs) Cthulhu-related. So who knows? Uh, And I should Uh say this is from Stephen Vandyvander. Go on, Matt, rip it open. Well, I've got the tape on the top to cut through first.
0: manager We're a quiver in anticipation, Matt.
2: It's a box within a box! Ah, always good. there's something... Actually, let's get rid of... Oh, there are two things, three things outside the box that I can see so far. The House of the Octopus. Essays on the real-life Cthulhu cult of the Pacific. Oh, wow. Mm. Oh, okay. There we go, pass it around to Paul.
0: Ah, I've not even heard
2: of that. No, me neither. No, 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 no. (laughs) I know these. What have Uh, you got there? Set of five finger tentacle puppets.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure they're designed to go on fingers, Matt?
2: Oh. I know you're not particularly well endowed, and it does say finger, It does say finger tentacle puppets. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Under the box, oh, okay. Matt is doing <laughs> hard work here. Are you all right there, yeah. Matt? There is indeed the uh, things that you see on the back of cars occasionally—the little Christian fish. No, oh, we yes. have a Cthulhu fish. Oh,
0: marvellous.
1: <laughs> Complete with tentacles and wings. Yes. But
0: that had better go on your car, Paul, because uh, Matt changes oh, his every six months Matt and gets- I don't have one.
1: <laughs> for listeners, Matt gets a new Mercedes-Benz every nine months. Oh, less than that. Probably oh. about every five or six at this
2: rate. <laughs> it all depends on what mileage I do, is it?
1: One of the perks of working for the company, I should say. Oh, Not yes. just being incredibly rich.
2: I wish, but then again, RPG <laughs> is where the big bucks are, isn't it? <laughs> Um, Ah, Matt has now
1: opened the box and I can see polystyrene. There is indeed a polystyrene sheet, so let's get that out of the way. What do we have?
2: Oh, wow! Uh oh
1: Oh, Matt's impressed. Oh, it looks...
2: It is indeed a Cthulhu Idol. Oh, Oh, wow! wow. (laughs) Indeed, made by Pacific Giftware. And yes, this is indeed a little idol, very, very much as what would have been found by Inspector Legrasse out in the Louisiana
0: swamp. That, that does look eldritch and, and uncanny. Yeah, nice.
2: kind of a greeny, silvery bronze, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Nice. Oh, a little key hanging off one of, it, one of his tentacles as well. Huh.
0: <laughs> yes, very, I, th- nice. I, th- I think Cthulhu should watch over the the recording studio from now should on. Should we put him on the mantelpiece? Yeah, yeah. Sit, sit there and watch us as we work.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Stephen, and we look forward to meeting you, I think, at Necronomicon. Oh, yes, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And picking up again with the thanks to our patrons, we're now at the five-dollar level, where we sing to our backers. And the first thanks goes out to Aaron Besson. So yes, thank
0: you, Aaron, and uh, yes, in- enjoy this. Indeed, thank you, Aaron. Uh, yeah, brace break, break yourself. Aaron Besson. Aaron Besson. Aaron Besson. Aaron Besson. Aaron Besson. And we have thank yous and songs now, or a song, to offer to Noah Sheehy.
2: I still think one day we are going to get caught out by uh, trade descriptions here. It sure doesn't sound like singing, but...
0: Thank you, Noah. Sorry. But on the other hand, if they've listened to the song, they're in no condition to actually raise any charges against us because we will have destroyed their minds. Ah.
1: The yellow sign can take any form. Our songs can take any form. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Noah.
0: on social media
1: and i see we've had a new itunes review from john fiala in the us he says the good friends of jackson Elias is an interesting and thought-provoking podcast that's not afraid to wander afar to discuss related topics to call a cthulhu role-playing such as a recent episode well recent for me about the heaven and earth role-playing game I'm always happy to sit down and listen to another thoughtful discussion with these fine gentlemen. Well,
0: thank you very much, John. Very much appreciated. I mean, that's, that's lovely of you to say so.
2: And a shout out to Heaven and Earth. Woohoo! <laughs> we had some great feedback as well about our recent episode on realism in RPG settings. Continuing from the, and this is where poor late lamented Google Plus post from Christine Fisher that we started last episode. I've had some bad con games where the GM-keeper told us the story of the world for an hour of a six-hour slot on one end of the spectrum. On the other end, I've had games where, no, the world is like this. Surprises cropped up every ten minutes. We all started asking about our intended moves instead of knowing and playing our characters, which was not a fun game experience. I guess I'm saying the sense of reality in a game is dependent on the right level of world complexity and revelation how do you introduce a world when it isn't this one how and when do you state the major alternative fact or facts of the world or the alternate customs
0: yeah i think this is a really interesting point i think one of the big struggles with presenting a game with a complex rich or convoluted setting in particularly convention game or certainly to new players which is it can be so overwhelming i There's, I think, a reason why when you see fantasy worlds created in fiction or for television or for films, you tend to get introduced to them through outsiders. So someone who is sharing the audience's experience of discovering this world anew. I guess if I were running a convention game with a really complex setting like Christine's talking about there... I'd probably be inclined to have the characters be outsiders. It would give some reason to why the players wouldn't know anything because their characters don't know anything. For
1: GMs, perhaps the thing to do is to look at how films and stories deal with this. You know, a film has establishing shots. There'll be things that take place in the opening moments that tell us oh this world is like this thinking of Blade Runner you know we have him going into his apartment and all the lights are a bit crappy it's clearly like a dystopian future it is sci-fi but things are falling apart and everyday items don't necessarily work properly so I think if you're a GM sort of trying to think how to communicate that effectively through a small amount of information can go quite a long way.
2: This is something I've been intimidated by as a GM as well, thinking that when if you want to attempt to run a game that's got such a rich and detailed setting, it's one of the ones that's been publicised out there in the wider world of news of RPGs, is there's a new version of the Dune RPG coming. Mm, right. And I keep thinking, oh yeah, I saw the Lynch film, yeah, wasn't quite as terrible as other people say maybe. But that's a kind of RPG I'd maybe want to explore at some point.
1: Have you read the book?
2: No, but this is part of the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's a lot of intimidating source material there.
1: Yeah, I think, well, Mm -hmm. as as a GM and as a player, it can be intimidating when there's that amount of information. But I think you've got to sort of make it explicit, this is for people who are really embedded in the source material and want that depth of game, or I'm just going to play fast and loose with it and make that clear as well at the outset.
2: Which I have seen done. Um, on some sign-up sheets, because I know um, this is going back a couple of years, but Mac Nixon was running some Dresden Files games and put on the sheets only uh, sign up if you've read the books up to this book.
1: Right. And I think the next bit of feedback plays on this as well. From Daily Dwarf, who says, Shared expectations of an RPG setting is a bit of a minefield. Take Glorantha, for example. Greg Stafford always maintained that your Glorantha may vary in brackets, YGMV, and not to be too tied to canon. However, with a well-established setting, expectations are inevitable. I'm not sure an approach like YGMV can survive, particularly in the internet age. If I ran a RuneQuest game without the Lunar Empire, for example, I suspect many Glorantha would feel cheated and abandon the game pretty quickly. Ultimately, as you say, communication is the key
0: yeah and i think you know, what matt was talking about there with what matt nixon did on his sign-up sheets and so say you know here are the expectations of what the game's going to be i think similarly if you if you said from the outset that you know this is going to be a modified glurantha where the lunar empire never existed then you could get the players to buy into that even if they do know glurantha fairly well or at least those who weren't willing to buy into it would be warned up front and would not sign up to the game
1: And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about the Carcosa Mythos and
0: gaming? Seeing as we're still, you know, here talking about the Carcosa Mythos as opposed to the Hasta Mythos or the Cthulhu Mythos, what is it about that specific set of elements, if anything, that appeals to us as gamers?
2: I love the fact it's, well, not an excuse, but it's a vehicle by which you can throw so much weird shit at your players that it's an almost endless bounty. There's so many different ways you can reimagine things. There's so many different things you can use it to scare players with or even characters with. Hey, if you get both,
1: hey, win-win. Like you say, there is so many things in there. And the thing that appeals to me is that you can just pick and choose like a toolbox. You can just pull a few bits out and mash them up as you wish. And I think we see this done in a number of the stories, going back to primarily Chambers. You know, if you compare Repair of Reputations with the story, The Yellow Sign, they've got some elements that overlap, but they're not like one story continuing from another. Actually, thinking back, there are some characters that may appear in both stories or or be referenced. But, you know, they're very different iterations of the story, I think. So, you know, he was doing it. He wasn't, like, painting a, a consistent... Body of setting and work, particularly. So, we can very much do that with our gaming, you know. And I think you could have a game where there is no king in yellow, but there is a carcosa. You could omit items or, or use them as you wish. The king yeah. is dead. Long live the king.
0: <laughs> and I think this is something that fiction writers traditionally have been a lot more willing to do. I don't know why it is, but I tend to see. Much less daring in scenario writing. I think people are, on the whole, less willing to reinvent things wholesale the way you do in fiction. I mean, you know, the number of the Carcosa mythos stories we've been through in these various collections and anthologies do display a, a wide range of reinvention, of recreation, of really idiosyncratic takes on things. And yet, certainly when, yeah, I see Call of Cthulhu scenarios that use the king in yellow. A lot of them do tend to fall back on the same old tropes, focusing on the play, focusing on performances of the play, using the same characters in the same kinds of ways, the same entities in the same kind of ways, because you know somehow all of this is canon, so all you can do is move the pieces slightly differently. And I think that is a catastrophic mistake.
1: I would agree with you about a lot of the scenarios having a similar sort of feel. I think there's been a, a mould that's set in gaming. That's what The King and Yellow is about. So if I'm writing a King and Yellow scenario, that's what I lean upon. But I think you're overly totally kind to a lot of the fiction because I, I kind of feel, yeah, we've picked out the good ones that don't yeah. do that. But there's a lot of them that just do, do pull out the same old tropes and oh, really don't yeah. do anything innovative with them.
0: But, but I guess, you know, the point is that, you know, it's perhaps, you know, half of the fiction that's been mm. written as opposed to, say, 95 percent of the, the scenarios that have been written.
1: So basically, there's a lot of scope out there still for new games using the King Yellow mythos
0: indeed and long may continue
1: so until next time it's a good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me
0: hello blasphemous tomes